Good morning. Again, uh, welcome to Calvary Chapel Bikuni. Always just a blessing to be here with you guys. Let's go ahead and turn our attention to the Word of the Lord and our time of study. This morning we're going to look to wrap up our study of Luke chapter 9. And so why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke's Gospel and to the ninth chapter. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 62. And uh, if you um, don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free to reach down and grab one uh, underneath some of the chairs around you. Uh, There's usually uh, one close by. Uh, We do think it's important that you're able to follow along. Luke chapter 9, you guys ready? Will you all rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word? I'm going to read from my Bible, which is the New King James Version of the Bible. I want to encourage you to do your best to follow along in your own Bible. Luke continues his narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ with the following in verse 46. It says, Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he returned and rebuked them And said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Verse 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me, go and bury my, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to them, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word to Uh, dive into your scriptures, the the word of truth, the foundation upon which we build our lives, Lord, you being uh, Jesus, that chief cornerstone, and the word become flesh. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just lead us uh, through this time of study, that we would understand what your Spirit's desiring to say to us, to speak to us. Lord, that you'd give to us an attentive uh, ear, Lord, and uh, an open heart. And so, Lord, we pray, uh, speak, to us, your children, as we've gathered in this place. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. 
This morning we are going to be talking about greatness. And anytime you start talking about greatness and the greatest uh, anything, there always seems to be some debate. Uh, this weekend is a prominent weekend back in the States for American football fans. Uh, Super Bowl Sunday is upon us. Uh, you know, one of the bonuses of moving to Japan and doing ministry here is that I don't have to miss out on any football on Sundays because of church. You know, when I first got saved, um, you know, I, I didn't grow up in the church, so I watched football all day on Sunday, you know, but I got saved and started plugging into the church and football went bye-bye, you know, um, but then the Lord said, I'll give you, send you to Japan and I get to wake up early Monday morning on my day off and watch football, so cool. Anyway, sorry. Um, uh, oh, one other reminder, okay? Tomorrow is the Super Bowl, but tomorrow is also Valentine's Day, okay? Um, one caveat you guys do have going for you is that here in Japan, Valentine's Day is actually the time for the women to buy for the men on Valentine's Day. Um, it's actually not till a month later, March 14th, on White Day, that the men buy for the women. So football and Valentine's gifts for you tomorrow. So, you know, awesome. Good for you guys. <laughs> I even hear some of you get the day off. It's like becoming a national holiday. Um, you know, though, for those of you who aren't aware, uh, perhaps some of our Japanese brothers and sisters or some who, you know, simply didn't grow up in America, the Super Bowl is the final championship game uh, in the American football year. It's a game that many use to actually gauge greatness uh, on the football field. You know, throughout the years, there has been discussion of who's the greatest football player of all time. You know, and through the years, people have tried to say, oh, maybe it's uh, Montana or Brady or, or Rice or Walter Payton or Jim Brown, uh, Lawrence Taylor, Otto Graham, if you go way, way back, you know. Different guys that play different positions from different eras, and it's hard to say with certainty. And that's why it's something that's often debated, often discussed. You know, how do we evaluate greatness? Uh, is it purely by championships won? You know, do we take into account how long people played, uh, what position they played? Do we consider their overall impact upon the game uh, when it comes to football? Because there is no surefire way to evaluate individual greatness in a team sport, the debates and discussions will continue to go on and on and on, probably until the Lord comes back, okay? You know, in our text today, we read about a dispute that the disciples were having amongst themselves. They were arguing with each other over which of them would be the greatest amongst the disciples. Would it be Peter? The man whom God gave the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The man to whom God the Father revealed the true identity of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God? Or what about John, okay, the beloved disciple of Jesus? Maybe it would be him. After all, he is the only disciple that is described as being the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then not just once, okay, not twice, but five separate times in the scriptures, you will find that description that John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Of course, you only find that description in John's gospel, but hey, he should get points for trying, I think, you know. 
Or, or maybe it would be one of the other brothers, perhaps Andrew or James. Jesus, perceiving the thoughts of their hearts, takes an opportunity to lay out for the disciples what true greatness is all about. And as we go through our text this morning, we're going to highlight some biblical principles about greatness. What makes someone great in, in, in this life uh, of a believer? What makes someone great in the kingdom of God? You know, uh, I will sadly confess this. Uh, my favorite football team is the Raiders. Um, and it's been a really long time since they played in the Super Bowl and won it. Uh, but they do have a team motto that I was reminded of as I prepared for this weekend's message. It's a commitment to excellence. Uh, and that motto is supposed to drive and inspire the team to continue to grow into the best team that they could be. Well, in our text today, we're going to note what it means to have a commitment to greatness. Okay? And that's the title of our study this morning, Commitment to Greatness. What is needed in order to be great in the kingdom of God? What does the Bible have to say about greatness? And so let's dive in and see what the Luke has for us here at the end of chapter 9. Let's start by taking a look at the setup of all this in verses 46 through 48. It says, Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all will be great. We read in our opening verse about a dispute that had rose among the disciples about which of them would be the greatest. We actually learn from Mark's gospel that the dispute the disciples had was something they were debating amongst themselves apart from Jesus as they traveled along the road to the city of Capernaum. Interestingly enough, we're not given any indication in any of the other gospel accounts as to what started this dispute in the first place. Uh, perhaps the fact that Peter, James, and John were getting a little extra attention uh, created some jealousy within uh, the hearts of the others. After all, those three just came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. They got to be part of this glorious, uh, miraculous event. Uh, perhaps the fact uh, that they were getting that extra attention bothered the other guys, and so they struck up this debate. We don't know exactly what they said, but I think we could easily imagine some of the defenses each of them would have. You know, perhaps Peter was trying to build a case for himself based upon the fact that he was the only one who walked on water and how he was the one who properly identified Jesus back in Caesarea Philippi and how Jesus said how he was blessed with revelation from the Heavenly Father. You know, I can even imagine some of the other disciples probably retorting with how Peter nearly drowned as well, you know, and how, you know, right after Jesus gave him that credit of, you know, divine revelation, he called him Satan and said, get behind me. And so, you know, I can see the, the disciples kind of saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, what about this, Peter, you know? Maybe perhaps Judas was trying to make a case for himself, giving as evidence the fact that amongst all of the disciples Jesus had, that he trusted him above all the others to be the one in charge of holding the, the money purse. You know, he was the guy that had all the, the finances. Maybe the brothers James and John focused upon their numerous opportunities to have that extra time with the Lord. You know, Andrew, he could have clamored in about how none of them would have even known about Jesus if he hadn't first told them about him, how it was him who brought Peter and some of the others to Jesus in the first place. Perhaps Matthew, 
you know, he would pipe in talking about how he, how he had the most dramatic of transformations amongst them, how he used to be a tax collector, how his transformation, his sacrifice was greatest and that Jesus would reward him accordingly. Whatever they said, we can't be for certain, but we do know is that there was enough uncertainty amongst them that it led to them fighting amongst each other about who would be the greatest. And different people were trying to lay different claims, obviously. In verse 47, we read that Jesus perceived the thought of their heart. Though they tried to keep the dispute amongst themselves, Jesus knew exactly what it was that these guys were fighting about. And because he knew what they were talking about, fighting about, he took the opportunity to explain to them greatness in the kingdom of God. And he did so through an object lesson. Jesus took a little child and set him by him and declared, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all will be great. Jesus called his disciples together and gave to them the first secret to greatness. He said something totally revolutionary and contrary to everything they had ever seen or heard at all about greatness. Jesus said the way to be great was to become the least. In another gospel, Jesus is recorded as saying, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now this would fly in the face of what the rest of the world would say. In that day, and and much the same in our own day, greatness is based upon how many people that serve you, not how many people you serve. If someone had a whole bunch of servants that attended to their every need, they would be seen as great. The fact that they had had many servants that served them was seen as evidence of someone's overall wealth and success and power and status and and we could say greatness, but not so in Jesus' kingdom. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven was not based upon your status, how many people you had serving you, but was based upon you serving others. It was about service. And that's our first principle about true greatness. True greatness is displayed when we serve the greatest and the least of all. The greatest of all being the Lord and the least of all. Well, Jesus turns to a child to make an illustration. He brought a child into the midst of the group and set him before them saying, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Being the last and least meant serving the least of all, tending to the needs of the most needy. Small children are really some of the neediest group of people there are. Now the word used here for small child, it's actually the same word that's used to describe the child Jesus when the Magi came to visit him. Uh, This term, it speaks of a toddler, a very small child. Toddlers can't do much for themselves except for get into trouble and make big messes, okay? They do those two things really, really well. I have a toddler in our home. I can can verify the truth of that matter, okay? Little children, they need constant care, constant supervision, constant provision, and they don't have much by way of substance or materialistic gain to offer in return right kids don't have money to to pay you for your service they don't have power or prestige or influence that can help be used to uh, make your way through to the top 
You see, in our world today, we talk about how important it is to know the right people. That in order to get ahead in life, you need to know certain people, okay? People that can help you along the way. People that can put in a good word for you. And we want to surround ourselves with people that, you know, we can use to advance our own cause. Not so with the Lord. It's all about service. It's about serving others, not yourself. It's putting your own self-interest below the interests and desires and needs of others. Jesus attested to the fact that if you receive a little child in his name, that you were actually receiving him. And that if you received him, you were receiving him who sent him, the Heavenly Father. And let me tell you, church family, there's none greater to serve and to have on your side and to be with you than the Lord. Well, Something Jesus said grabbed the attention of one of his disciples. Let's read and see what it was. Read with me verses 49 and 50. It says, Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. The disciple John interrupted the teaching of the Lord to tell him about a situation he and the guys had recently been in. I think John heard Jesus say, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And he focused in upon that phrase, in my name. And this brought to his memory a situation where someone else was doing something in Jesus' name, and they stopped him. John recounted how they came across someone that was casting out demons in Jesus' name, but that they forbade him from doing so because he wasn't part of their group, essentially. You see, John had the wrong perspective here. John had a sense of exclusivity about him. He didn't want anyone doing anything in Jesus' name unless they were part of their group. As if the disciples were the only followers that Jesus gained during the last two and a half years of public ministry. As if they were the only ones that could be used by the Lord. This type of thinking was wrong, and Jesus corrects John's perspective and way of thinking here. Jesus said, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. What Jesus is basically saying is that if someone isn't against us, they must be for us. There's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. You're either against him or you're for him. And if someone is for us, well, that means that we're on the same side. Okay? We're on the same team, if you will. Okay? We're all in it together. And the main point I believe Jesus was wanting to get across to John was that there are others who aren't with them that are still out there doing the work of the Lord. And I believe this brings to us the next principle of true greatness that I want to highlight for us as we consider our own commitment to greatness. True greatness is displayed when we encourage unity amongst the body of Christ instead of an exclusivity. Listen, we're all part of the body of Christ. If you call Calvary Chapel Iwakuni your home church, Well, you're part of the body of Calvary Chapel, Iwakuni, but you're also part of the greater body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about the body of Christ. He writes, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit, For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Paul would go on to talk about the importance of the different parts of the body and how each are necessary and how each play a special role in the overall 
body of Christ, the function of the body. Listen, we all can't be an eye. Okay? We all can't be an ear or a hand or a foot or a mouth. You see, a healthy body has only need for two ears and two eyes and two feet and two hands, one mouth. No one part is more important than the other. Each has a unique and important part to play in filling the body of Christ. And John's attitude of superiority over other people working in the body of Christ was just flat out wrong. And we need to make sure that we aren't doing the same thing as him. Listen, church family, there are a number of brothers and sisters in the Lord here in Iwakuni that don't go to our church, okay? And that's okay. That's wonderful, okay? Because we're only one part of the greater body of Christ doing our best to do as the Lord leads us. You see, our brothers and sisters over at uh, Rock Point down in downtown, they're part of the greater body of Christ and they're doing things as the Lord leads them. We can say great. We can say wonderful. We can rejoice with them. Okay, the same is true for our brothers and sisters down here at Faith Baptist, for those attending services on base at the chapel. We're all part of the greater body of Christ. We don't want to make this same mistake that John did and think that Jesus is only limited to working in and through us and our group, as if God's only doing a work at Calvary Chapel. I, I believe he is doing a work here. Okay? But let's not get the wrong idea that he's limited to only working here. He's doing a work in all these places. He's doing a great work all over Iwakuni and all over Japan and all over the rest of the world. And we ought to be just be glad to be part of it. You see, greatness in the kingdom of God means understanding the importance of unity within the body of Christ. How we're all on the same team. And too many Christians are spending too much of their time fighting with each other and are failing to realize that they're on the same side. They're on the same team. We need to stop fighting with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and start engaging the real enemy out there. Let's continue in our text and see what other principles we can glean about greatness in the kingdom of God. Read with me verses 51 all the way down to 56. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he churned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. You see, the time for Jesus to start making his way towards Jerusalem was at hand. It was time for him to start his journey towards the cross. And as he set way upon his journey from the region of Galilee, making his way down towards Jerusalem, he sent messengers before him to prepare the way. And one of the first places that he would come to was a certain village of the Samaritans. Now, in general... The Samaritans did not get along with the Jews, nor did the Jews get along with the Samaritans. 
Earlier on in Jesus' ministry, he went through a certain Samaritan city and dialogued with a woman at a well. You may be familiar with that portion of Scripture. It's in John chapter 4. Um, and, and there the woman actually testified of how Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She kind of questioned Jesus. How is it that you, being a Jew, would t- talk to me? I'm a Samaritan, right? And so as Jesus entered into the city, the people there, they would not receive him because his focus was upon his journey towards Jerusalem. You know, perhaps they felt slighted by Jesus' focus and determination. Perhaps they felt like Jesus saw them as inferior or less important than those from Jerusalem. We don't know what they felt. We just know that they did not welcome Jesus and receive him because of his focus uh, to head towards Jerusalem. And that's when things got a little interesting. James and John... Scripture refers to them as the sons of thunder. And this kind of gives us an explanation for why they might have been called the sons of thunder. They saw that the city had rejected Jesus and came to him proclaiming, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Wow. These guys, okay, they were so off base here that it is somewhat comical, okay? I can almost see the Lord shaking his head in utter disbelief and confusion, just going like, what am I going to do with you guys, you know? Evidently, seeing Elijah up on the Mount of Transfiguration inspired these men. I don't know. It made them feel like they could call down fire from heaven like Elijah did. Jesus quickly turns to James and John and rebukes them declaring, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Now, some of you out there may be looking at your Bible and wondering what I am talking about here because your Bible doesn't say anything at all about what Jesus actually said. Your Bible just reads, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. Anybody's Bible out there says that? Okay, good. What we have here is a variation in source texts. Okay? Different Bible translation use different texts for their works of translation. And without getting into the nitty-gritty uh, details of it all, there are basically two schools of thought out there when it comes to Bible translations. It's much more deeper than this, but I'll give you a very basic. Okay? Some adhere to the mindset that the oldest manuscripts around must be the most accurate They are closer in time to the originals and therefore are considered to be the best because there's been less time for possible corruption or copyist errors to creep in. And so regardless of how many other manuscripts agree with them, they're the oldest, so they must be the best. And that's one school of thought that's used. We're going to get as close as we can to the originals. Okay, just so you guys know, there are no more, there are no originals, okay? If people talk about, oh, the original text, when we refer to that, we don't have the originals. We have copies of copies of copies. We basically are looking back to find the oldest copies that we have. That's what we base our translations off. That's one school of thought. The other main mindset puts an emphasis not upon the oldest known manuscripts, but the most common manuscripts that all agree. The idea is that if you can find thousands of manuscripts that all say the same thing, the likelihood that they are accurate copies becomes overwhelming when you consider how many different copies all say the same thing. 
you know, the scribes, they were very meticulous in their copying. And so if you find, you know, oh, this one says this, and this one says this one, and this one that we found way over here, it says the same thing. And this one we found over here, they all say the exact same thing. They not, may not be as old as these other manuscripts, but because they all say the same thing, we're going to base our translations off of those texts. And that's the other main school of thought. Now, there's more to it than that, but that's the basic idea. The King James Version, the New King James Version, will often differ from other modern translations because their translations are based upon different schools of thought. Okay? Most of the time, modern English Bibles will at least include some sort of reference to what some of the other main source texts say whenever there is a discrepancy. But I found that on not all modern Bibles do so here in verse 55 and 56. Okay? I mean, have a lot of different Bibles at my access. I checked them all, was looking at them. And a lot of them do reference it, uh, but there's a few that don't. Um, and so um, I wanted to at least bring that to attention and explain that. Okay? And I do really believe that that's unfortunate. Okay, I, I obviously like the New King James Version of the Bible. I use it as my primary Bible. But at least whenever there are differences in the text, the editors of the New King James Version at least make note of the differences, either in the side margins or in the footnotes, uh, that I might know what the other source texts say and how there could be a difference. Um, and so we see that. Um, and it is a bit of a pet peeve of mine when editors don't mention the differences in source text and other modern English translations. And so, you know, of our English Bibles that are most prominent, you've got King James, New King James, kind of one school of thought, and then you have most of all your other modern uh, Bible translations are on a different school of thought. So your NIV, your ESV, your NASB, your NLT, if you've got a Bible, one of those Bible translations, uh, you probably have a side margin or something in the footnote about verse 55, 56. Although the newest version of the NIV doesn't have it in there, which I was bummed out about. But the 1984 NIV does have it in there. So, okay, in case you're wondering. Okay, all right. Anyways, sorry. Rabbit trail. Um, the fact that some of your Bibles may not record what Jesus had to say is a bit of a bummer because I see a principle of greatness found in Jesus' response to his disciples. You see, these guys had totally missed it. Jesus didn't come to destroy lives, but to save them. Okay, while James and John were filled with contempt, anger, and fury, wanted to call down fire, Jesus was filled with love and compassion and grace. They wanted to destroy lives, but Jesus came to save lives. And that is the next principle we must note in regard to what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. True greatness is displayed through a heart for the lost and through a heart to see lives saved. Okay, to see people reached by the gospel. If we want to be great in the kingdom of God, we need to have a heart for the lost. We need to have a compassion for those who need the Lord. Let's continue on. Take a look at verses 57 and 58. It says, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. As Jesus and his disciples continued upon their journey, we read of a certain someone that approached Jesus. Matthew's gospel lets us know that this person was a scribe. Scribes were experts in the understanding and study of the law of Moses. One of their main functions was to make copies of the Jewish law. And because they spent so much time writing and studying the law and the scriptures, they were usually well-respected 
by most. Jesus had a number of run-ins with scribes, and they usually weren't very welcoming of Jesus and his ministry. However, there were some that seemed to have been different. And this particular scribe, he came to Jesus and he declared, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. I think it's safe to assume that this scribe has probably been following Jesus around and witnessing some of the miracles that were taking place. Possibly uh, he was even there to hear a number of Jesus' different teachings upon the law. No doubt he was impressed, like all of the rest, with the authority by which Jesus taught the law. You know, the scribe seems very excited about following the Lord, very zealous in his pronouncement that he'd follow Jesus anywhere. And I think we can understand the scribe's excitement. Uh, as a scribe, okay, he was probably spent a majority of his life studying and dedicating himself to the law, the study of the law, and to have someone like Jesus come along unseen that displayed such command and authority and uh, understanding and insight into the law, it would be something very exciting to be part of. But Jesus cautioned this scribe filled with all this excitement and zeal. Jesus declared, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Basically, Jesus was saying, hey, have you counted the cost? This life of traveling around isn't so easy. You may have to give up some of life's creature comforts, like a soft pillow to lay your head down on each night. Have you really weighed out this decision of yours? Later on in Luke, Jesus will caution similarly in Luke chapter 14. There Jesus declares this. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever you does not forsake all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Jesus made this great demand upon any who would choose to follow after him as his disciple. And he did so as the multitudes were following him as if to say, hey, are you guys following me? Really willing to make the commitment to follow me wherever I go? Are you willing to surrender all that you have, to let go of the things that you hold dear, to surrender your very life, if need be? Obviously, Jesus knew that this scribe had not counted the cost, that he was simply responding from emotion and out of excitement. You know, when it comes to being great and greatness in God's kingdom, we must first count the cost. And decide for ourselves if we're willing to make the sacrifices that God has called us to. To be willing to surrender whatever it is you hold dear. That you may serve the Lord wholeheartedly. You know, I think sometimes we could be like this scribe. Things are happening. We get all excited. We think we're going to join up with Jesus. And each and every day is going to be filled with teaching and preaching and healing and casting out demons. And it's going to be awesome. 
You know, having been on the mission field here in Japan for nearly 19 years, I've seen a number of examples of people like this scribe. Throughout my time in, in Okinawa, we used to have groups that would come out and assist with a short-term missions work. And oftentimes, some of the people that would come out would get like this scribe. They'd get very excited, very zealous. Um, They'd be all excited about all that was going on because we'd be doing street witnessing and we'd be doing evangelism in the park and we'd be doing concerts and outreaches and BBS and we'd cram as much as we could into the two weeks or so that they would uh, be there. You know, maybe you've done short-term missions trips before. You kind of have a sense of what it can be like. And some of them would get the feeling that this is what it was like all the time on the mission field. That it was so awesome that they couldn't wait to go and get out on the mission field themselves and it'd be like this every day. You know, one of the group leaders that would often bring out youth from California was Pastor uh, Joseph Tatsis, who, by the way, is going to be here uh, in two Sundays. He'll be bringing the word uh, here at Calvary. Uh, Pastor Joseph was the youth leader at the time at Calvary Chapel Montebello in Los Angeles. Uh, before he moved to Osaka, Japan, uh, and started to work there back in 2010, I think it was. But he would bring these groups out, and he would often warn them about wonderlust, is what he called it. Um, I don't know if it's a phrase that he coined or not, but he would describe it as getting caught up in all the emotion and the excitement of ministry without really understanding the full picture of it all. And he was spot on in his assessment, his caution. Because there was no way that we could operate that way for very long. <laughs> You know, when those missions teams would come through, we'd take advantage of them and their energy and their excitement to do things that we normally just couldn't do on our own. And so, yeah, we'd do concerts and we'd do street witnessing and VBS and evangelism and at the park. But there was, it was because they were there to be that support, to, to do the work with us. And oftentimes when they'd leave, it'd be like, okay, we're going to take a few days off of work here and don't come into the office. We're not going to be doing anything. Just rest and, and, and recuperate. Um, you know, we couldn't keep that sort of pace up for very long. In a sense, we could maybe liken them. Not, uh, I don't have a military background. Maybe this is not accurate. But I kind of think of them as the special ops team. You know, they're sent in to do a specific mission. They come in all gung-ho. They complete the mission, and then they take off. But, you know, there's still, you know, Marines and, and soldiers that are left behind doing the battle every single day, day in, day out, battling it out in the trenches. That's what following and serving Jesus is like. It's like being in the trenches. Sure, we'll have those days when we get to see God do incredible things, but more often than not, God chooses to work in the everyday little things that we do. See, Jesus cautioned this scribe, you need to count the cost. You need to realize what it is that you're signing up for. Are you willing to make the needed sacrifice to be great in God's kingdom? Because being great in God's kingdom will always involve sacrifice. Let's continue on. We'll see what else we can note about greatness in God's kingdom. Remember verses 59 and 60. He said, then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Here we read of another that seemingly approached Jesus. To this one, Jesus called him to follow after him. But the man replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, it's important to note something here, and I'm sure most of you probably realize this, but there may be some here that do not. This man's father was not yet dead. 
It's not as if, you know, this man's father had just breathed his last and his lifeless body was lying around waiting to be buried. Okay, that's not the case. The phrase, let me first go and bury my father, was a way of saying, let me wait until my father dies and then I can bury him and then I can follow you after that. Then I can come serve you. It was like deferring to, you know, a later time. It was saying, yes, but with strings attached. You know, when the time is right, I'll come and follow you. The implication here is that this man was willing to follow Jesus, but he simply wasn't ready to follow him in that moment. Something stood in the way from being able, him being able to fully commit to the Lord. For this man, it was a sense of obligation to care for his earthly father before serving his heavenly father. Jesus' response to him may seem a bit harsh, He said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, physically dead people cannot do anything. They're dead, after all. (laughs) So what's meant by this phrase, right? Let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus must be referring to a different type of dead person, not a physically dead person, but I believe the spiritually dead. In essence, what Jesus is saying is, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Jesus was not asking this man to be disrespectful to his father, but more so was bringing to question this man's priorities. Were his priorities in their proper order? You see, this brings to, another, brings to us another principle regarding greatness in God's kingdom. You see, true greatness will be seen in the priorities of our life. What is most important to you? What, if anything, is more important than serving the Lord, okay, than being completely yielded to the Lord? Oh, I want to serve Jesus, but I've got this thing that I have to take care of first. You can fill in the blank. There's an endless number of excuses and misplaced priorities that we allow to hinder us from committing to a life of greatness and serving the Lord. I can't wait until my kids get older, then I'll serve Jesus. I can't wait to get back to the U.S. or out of Japan, and then I'll serve Jesus. You know, I can't wait until I get married, then I'll serve Jesus. I can't wait until I get out of the military, and then I'll serve Jesus. I I can't wait to have more time, then I'll serve Jesus. You know, I can't wait until, until what? What's keeping you from making the commitment to serving the Lord and being great in His kingdom? Whatever it is, Is it more important than honoring the relationship that you have with the Lord and your commitment to follow Him and to serve Him? You see, the truth of the matter is that you could serve the Lord in every one of those situations. You can serve the Lord even if you have little children. You can serve the Lord here in Iwichikuni, Japan. You can serve the Lord as a single male or female. Okay, You can serve the Lord in the military. You can serve the Lord with the time that you have now. You see, nobody ever gets more time. We are allotted the same 24 hours in a day. Make the most of each situation the Lord has you in and seek for ways to honor Him and to grow in your relationship with Him that you may be great in God's kingdom. Continuing on, we'll wrap up our text. Look at verse 61 and 62. It says, Another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, Having put, his hand, having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. This last encounter we read of here in Luke chapter 9 is one that involves yet another person 
who expressed an interest in following after the Lord. He declares his willingness to follow the Lord, but declared, let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. This man had a desire to follow Jesus, perhaps to be great in God's kingdom, to be part of some amazing things, but his problem was he had too many attachments to the things in his past that he couldn't push forward into the things of the future. This man said, I'll follow you, but he was too busy looking back to be able to effectively move forward following after Jesus. And Jesus could see that this man's heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord but that he was torn between pushing forward with the Lord and looking back towards his loved ones in his household. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he wasn't quite ready to cut his ties to his past, his life prior to the Lord. Jesus responded to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, this verse verse is a, a very important verse. It has a very important place in my heart and in my wife's heart. Uh, For it was this verse that the Lord gave to us in the late spring of 2003, prior to selling off our belongings and moving to the mission field in Okinawa, Japan. For us, this verse was a make-or-break moment. You see, uh, we had come to Okinawa, Japan previously in late 2001. I had an opportunity to teach at Okinawa Christian School International, um, for about a, a period of about nine months. And we fell in love with Okinawa. We fell in love with the ministry. Um, but our commitment was only through the summer of 2002. And so after teaching summer school in 2002, Farah and I, along with our, at the time, was our youngest, our only, he's our eldest, uh, Caleb, uh, we moved back to the United States. Uh, and our heart's desire was to prayerfully return to Okinawa as soon as possible. Our plan was to go back to the U.S. for a year. I was going to work two jobs. We were going to pay off all of our debt, sell off our belongings, and move back to Okinawa in the summer of 2003. That was the plan. That was what we pursued after, feeling that the Lord was in it and that he was directing us. And then in the spring of 2003, just a a few months prior to our hopeful departure, we were shocked to discover that we were pregnant with Jonah. And in that moment, we were presented with a fork in the road. Would we continue to follow the Lord and answer the call to move to Japan or would we forego those plans, remain in the States, have Jonah, and then wait for perhaps a more opportune time to go? And as we prayed and we sought the Lord, this verse, okay, verse 62, was one of the verses that the Lord gave Pharaoh. And after she shared it with me, I knew the answer was clear. There was only one choice for us. And though it would be painful and challenging to tell our family that we were pregnant uh, with our second, and oh, by the way, we're still leaving, um, we were going to press forward with what we felt God was calling us to do. We felt that it was the only way. And it didn't make sense to a lot of people. And a lot of people cautioned us against it. You know, I had two jobs, so I had, you know, we had insurance and coverage, and, you know, we had different things kind of, we were doing okay. Um, you know, what would we do? We didn't have insurance in Japan. We had no clue as to how the system worked for getting prenatal care. We didn't even actually have a guarantee of a job once we arrived. All we had was this strong sense from the Lord that he was calling us and that we needed to trust him and, and push forward, not looking back. You know, Paul writes in Philippians the following. He says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, 
Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We need to be able to follow in the footsteps of Paul. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, that we may press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of, of God in Christ Jesus. True greatness in the kingdom of God requires a commitment to pushing forward, to keeping our focus upon Jesus and what lies ahead. We can, cannot be looking back and allowing ourselves to be distracted by things that aren't as important as the Lord. We need to keep our eyes forward, fixed upon Jesus as He leads the way. We cannot follow someone as they're going if we're constantly looking back. If we want to be great, we need to follow the greatest there ever was, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus exemplified all of these principles of greatness. He humbled Himself, and He came to serve the least of all. He did all he could to bring this body together in unity. He had a heart for the lost and was willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice in fulfilling the Father's plan. His priorities were set. He was a man on a mission and as he pushed forward to Jerusalem, knowing full well the cross that awaited him, he would not be detoured. Jesus is the greatest. And if we want to be great in his kingdom... We need to follow after him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this time just to look and to consider what greatness looks like in your kingdom, Lord. Quite contrary to what the world says. And Lord, I I do hope and I do pray that this message resonates in our hearts. Lord, that we do have a desire to be great. Lord, I, I noticed that as well. You did not rebuke these disciples for wanting to be the greatest. You simply said, hey, if you want to be great, this is what you need to do. Lord, may we desire to be great for you. May we desire to be great in your kingdom. And may the example that you laid before us be one that we follow after. Lord, that we would look to be the servant of all. Lord, that we would serve you the greatest, but we would serve the least as well. Lord, that we'd understand and realize that we're all part of a team, that you're doing a work in, in us and, and through us and through all sorts of other people as well. Lord, that we would understand the commitment to count the cost, to make the sacrifice, Lord, to follow after you without looking back. By your Spirit, we can do so, Lord. I pray you'd strengthen us to answer the call that we might be great for you and for your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.